And so I don't have an opening text, but I want to move to the very first place, and I'm going to start in the book of Romans in chapter number 14. So if you brought a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there, verses 17, 18, and 19, or they will be up on the screen. But I'm going to give you the first thing right now, that the kingdom isn't. The kingdom is not founded upon rules. I want you to hear me on this. Religion, which I'll get to in a moment, substitution Uh, the substitution of the enemy for kingdom often comes packaged in a set of religious rules that we are called to master. And so what poses as the kingdom is often nothing more than behavioral modification. It just means here's a bunch of rules. You say you believe in Jesus. Keep these rules and you're a kingdom person. And that, my friends, is not the fullness of God's kingdom. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He wrote in Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. Now, let me give you a little background because on the surface, those are not wow verses. But let me tell you what Paul's dealing with in the church of Rome. Paul is dealing with a whole mess of people that have been converted, and some of them have been converted out of very radically pagan backgrounds where they literally worshipped demons as part of the cult practice in Rome. Others of them were saved out of even Judaism. They were brought into the fullness of who Messiah really is, being Jesus Christ the Lord, but they were very disciplined and dignified and committed law followers as Jews, and now they are now in a church with former Gentiles. But the Lord has torn down the wall between Jew and Gentile. He's also torn down the walls of preference that different Christians have, no matter what group they come from, and he's placed them together in this glorious thing called the body of Christ. He's made them all kingdom citizens. But here's the rub. The reality is, is that when we come into the kingdom, we tote some baggage with us. Amen? Y'all are going to have to talk to me tonight. You're going to have to speak. That's just the way we roll around here. So we all tote a little bit of baggage with us. And we all bring something into the kingdom that really isn't helpful in the kingdom. And so in the church in Rome, let me explain what Paul is saying when he says, Hey, Christians... The kingdom of God is not what you eat and not what you drink. Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It warrants an explanation. Well, here's the deal. So in Rome, when the Christians would gather together, sometimes they would have these love feasts, and it was literally a dinner, and they would center it around um, you know, the, the body and the blood of Jesus. There was oftentimes the bread and the wine, and they would do communion together. But oftentimes, the love feast was an actual feast. They'd get together and just be with each other. Now, this is what was happening. Some of the Christians were coming, and they would bring meat fresh from the meat market. Sounds like great, great time to me. Hey, grill out some steaks, throw some chicken on the barbecue. Let's have an awesome time. And so they'd be bringing it, but it was to the horror of some of the other Christians. I said, Jeff, what are you talking about? We see that meat often was sacrificed in the marketplace by the market owner, the shop owner. They would oftentimes, before they processed the meat, they would take the animal from which the meat came. All the vegans are dying right now. Y'all just forgive me. But they would take that animal, let's just call it a lamb, and they would sacrifice it to a pagan false god. So that meat, all these people, when they were pagans, they're like, I know where that meat came from. We cannot eat that meat. That meat came from so-and-so down in the market, and I know how he fillets his steaks, and I can tell you, I know who he sacrificed that cow to before it became our dinner. And they were deeply grieved within, and you got other Christians in there that never had that background, and they were saying, come on, man, it's a steak. It's a hamburger, bro. Let's just eat what's before us. But automatically, their baggage has been exposed because you've got one group of people that with good conscience cannot eat that meat, and they're now judging the people that are going to sit down and grub out that night. Now, you and I don't deal with problems like that. You and I don't really have the meat versus no meat context. By the way, he mentions the other one that we do sometimes deal with in the 21st century uh, Western church. He said, it's not a matter, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. Now, what's he talking about there? Uh, He's talking about wine. He's talking about alcohol. And y'all don't pretend like Christians don't argue about that, okay? 
And don't write me messages because you think I'm on your side or against your side. You will never know where I stand on that. But let me tell you, the reality is, is good godly believers differ strongly on that. Some will say, hey, I'm not getting drunk. I can have a glass of wine. I can have an, a beverage. I'm not getting drunk. I know how to maintain control. And another Christian will say, you can't do that. You're going to ruin your testimony. That's going to mar who you, who you appear to be. You're badly representing Jesus. And so what happens again? You got the kingdom of God. That Jesus shed his blood to give both those groups of people entrance into the kingdom of God. And they are now fighting in the church of Rome over meat and drink. Now, I could take time tonight, and I'm not going to, and give you a long list of things that Christians love to fight about. Um, there's a lady named Rebecca Manley Pippert, and she wrote a book, I think it's her book, called Great Church Fights. What an awesome title for a book. It's really sad that it had to be written, but man, you know she had a wealth of material to wade through. Great church fights. I think it's Rebecca Manley Pippard. I think that's her name. Um, and so this book was written, and it, it literally talks about, in kind of a humorous way, all of the ri ridiculous things that church members, Christians, fight over. Hopefully you've never been exposed to that. Unfortunately for me, as I helped lead transition from a denominational church, highly traditional, into a non-denominational church, highly biblical, and seeking to be more biblical as we move together, I have found these collision points happen constantly. And this is what happens. Christians make a secondary issue into the issue to end all issues. That's what was happening at Rome. So Paul had to say, ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of God is not about your issue. Maybe you don't deal with that, but a lot of Christians do. Have you ever asked yourself why there are so many denominations? It's not always because of doctrine. Think about it this way. I, I was reared in my early years as a Christian in Baptist churches. You would be blown away. All you got to do is Google how many different types of Baptists are there. You, your mind will explode. Smoke will come out of your ears because you're like, are you kidding me? There are literally across the world, moving just from the Baptist, but across the world, there are tens of thousands of denominations. And many of them came into existence because Christians in the same community could not agree over stuff like this. Um, why, is that, why is that a big deal? Well, we sang it tonight. We... Kristen was singing out, Lord, unify heaven and earth, unify heaven and earth, unify heaven and earth. The, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to split us up into a bunch of toothpick, toothpicks scattered everywhere. He wants us to be one, and he paid an extremely high price in order to secure our unity with each other. And yet there is something within the heart of Christians to almost spy out something that they might disagree with another Christian about just so they can say, I'm not like her. I'm not like him. And all of a sudden, you got this dance going on and they're trying to move back and forth. Walls go up, relationships in, and the kingdom of God suffers in the sense of the weakness of the body of Christ. Paul said, let me tell you what the kingdom of God isn't. It's not meat and drink. And by the way, it's not whatever your pet doctrine is. Your personal preference. I hope you have some. I hope you have some strong personal convictions. I hope you have some traditions. I hope you have some standards. But I hope that you keep them where they belong. Because when they become so bloated and gigantic and you start layering them on other people, you make the kingdom of God to hinge on something that it was never meant to hinge on. So what does the Lord tell us to do? Well, you've got a Bible. You read the rest of Romans 14 and 15. It's very clear in there. He tells us to be careful how we use our liberties. Don't flaunt your liberties. If you're, if you're going to have a glass of wine, don't do it in the face of somebody that you know struggles with it. If you're going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, I don't know, maybe that happens in your neighborhood, I don't know. But, but if you're going to do that, don't do it at the supper where you invited the guy who used to worship at that pagan temple, but he's gotten saved now. What, what does that mean? It means we don't cast a stumbling block in front of one another. These things aren't the kingdom of God. We cannot make these divisive issues, these debatable issues, these issues of Christian liberty where there is no Bible on it. It is simply a matter of conscience, a matter of preference, a matter of tradition. You cannot thrust those forward into being primary issues in the kingdom of God. 
I think it's interesting that when Paul's saying it's not a matter of eating the meat or drinking the wine or restraining yourself from both of those, he says, but if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, look for righteousness, look for peace, look for joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is more than just moral cleanness in that statement. It's literally a word that I believe is probably better translated, uprightness, because he's talking about relationships. And what he's seeing in the church in Rome in chapter 14 and 15, he, in, in that letter, he's seeing that their relationships, the kingdom is suffering because people are bickering about things that are secondary issues. And he says, no, that's not the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is. Act uprightly with each other. Be righteous with one another. And by the way, make for peace with each other. Don't try to fan the flames of division or disagreement. Make peace with each other. You be the one to apologize. You be the one to humble herself. You be the one to, to prefer your brother over yourself, Paul would say. And he says, and if you'll do that, you're going to see the third thing, joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, people that make secondary matters into primary matters and, and call the kingdom to, to account on these things, they're the most joyless people in the world. You, you can't have joy if you're walking around inspecting everybody who disagrees with you. It's just oxymoronic. They will not go together. And so Paul is saying here, I want you to know something. The kingdom is not founded upon rules. Now, I think this warrants a small disclaimer. Are there things that we must prioritize in the kingdom that might present themselves in Scripture as a list of rules? Well, there absolutely are. You can turn to Galatians chapter number 5 and you're going to read the works of the flesh and the Bible says that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are things that we don't want in our life. Also on the positive side, the fruit of the Spirit is also listed there. You can look in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 and it gives you a lot of behavioral issues and at the end of it it says they which do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when I'm saying the kingdom's not about rules, what I'm saying is this. The kingdom is not about you finding out how many rules you can keep in the hopes that you'll gain God's favor and then you'll make it into the kingdom. That's not the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes via the second birth. You have to acknowledge that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have to recognize by faith that Jesus Christ came to save dead sinners like you. I know that's not flattering, but it happens to be theologically accurate. That we have to recognize in our deadness and our depravity, there's nothing we can do. And so we call on Jesus who came and laid his life down to satisfy the righteous judgment of God. Somebody's got to pay for your sin. I want you to get that. It's not about coming to church. It's not about mastering a list of behavioral modifications. It's not about trying to do the right thing as best as you can and hopefully that'll please God. None of that works. It comes down to the place where you've got to recognize somebody must die for your sin. Somebody has to die. There has to be a death associated with your sin. And there's only two options for your sin. You can trust in Jesus Christ who willingly laid down his sinless life on behalf of your sin-wrecked life. You may not have felt it was sin-wrecked, but from God's perspective it was. And when you trust that Jesus Christ died and rose again, your sins are atoned for. They're gone. And through faith, you are saved by grace through faith. The only other person that can die for your sin is you. And if you die for your sin, you're going to spend eternity always dying, always paying, but never paid up. And so when we see this massive price attached to get us into the kingdom of God, what we do is we take a step back and we say, how foolish it would be to cause a breach in something that Jesus Christ paid such a high price to unify and make solid. So let's go on to the second thing that the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God is not validated through rhetoric. Let's move from rules to rhetoric. What is rhetoric? Lots of words. And this is dangerous ground for me because this is my third sermon today. And I've been talking since five o'clock this morning and have not stopped except to read. And so words are just a part of our lives and again when we're thinking about the word of God Jesus is the living word the Bible is the written word we're not saying that we can't use words we must use words but what we're going to see here is there's a whole lot of talk and not enough action in the kingdom has it ever alarmed you that there is so much communication 
about things in the kingdom and things of the spirit and religious things, whether Christian or other religions, there is so much talk about it. And there always has been, and probably until the end, there always will be. But what alarms me is that even among us as believers, we have way more talking than we do power. Yeah, this is a convicting moment for all of us, including the guy preaching. So let me give you what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 4.20. Paul says this, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God is not in talk, but it's in power. Well, before I go to another verse in 1 Corinthians, what is he talking about there? So Paul would move around in a missionary apostolic calling, and he would go into new territories, and he would win people to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. He would disciple those people. He would group those people. He would typically, if he was able, train leaders to oversee those people, and that would become what we call a church. They didn't have a building. They didn't have you know, a platform, but they were a body of believers, newly saved, who were doing life together. And Paul would get them established. He would teach them the Great Commission. They would win other people, and it would become a thriving community that loved each other, that took care of each other, that learned and grew with each other. People would be uh, promoted into leadership. They would oversee the flock. And so it was a very organic way that God began to foster Christian community. Now, Paul would have to leave those groups. So he'd get them started, he'd get them grounded, and then he would leave. One of those churches was the church at Corinth. And when Paul left Corinth, people came in posturing. Leaders came in divisive. There were all sorts of little cliques and little groups and little divisions within the church. And ultimately, Paul got word, somebody got word to Paul and and, and told him this, hey, Paul, there's some people here now that came in after you left and they are trashing your name. They are saying that you're not an apostle, that you don't uh, represent Jesus, that you don't know what you're talking about. And what they would do is they would come in after Paul left and they they would come against him verbally. In the Greek culture, and that's where Corinth, Corinth was situated right in the middle of that, one of the greatest things you could have was the ability to speak. They loved oration. They loved to hear people talk. I mean, some guys were so gifted, they'd give them a copy of the Corinth phone book and just say, read it, we love to hear you talk. Now, that didn't really happen, but that's how addicted they were to speeches and oratory and and rhetoric. It was actually one of the arts of that time period in that culture it was an art it would be like us going to a symphony or us going to a theater or maybe even going to a ball game or a a museum where people might be doing their craft well they would literally show up just to hear people speak and so Paul was constantly compared to those kind of individuals and Paul by his own testimony we'll see uh, in a moment well matter of fact let's just put it up there first Corinthians 2 4 and 5 Paul says this my speech my manner of speech And my message, what I said, were not implausible words of wisdom, but they were backed up by demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I love this about Paul. Paul was humble enough to say, yeah, I I can't out-talk those guys. They have skills I don't have. They have oratory that I don't have. And now that Paul's moved out of Corinth, some of these slick, oily-tongued guys had moved in, and they're just elbowing, and they're having to put Paul down so they can become preeminent in the church there at Corinth. And what Paul says, this is so, he's just chill. Paul says, yeah. Can I paraphrase here? You can read all of this out through Paul's letters to 1 and 2 Corinthians. He says, yeah. Um, So I hear that there's some people mocking me. I hear that they say I can't talk. And you know what? They're actually right. I can't speak as well as they do. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter number um, uh, 2, he says, yeah, but the kingdom of God is not about what you say. It's about what kind of power is on your life. So let's go there. Because, friends, if there is one glaring absence that confronts my soul all the time it is answering this question god where's the power lord i love the surge of emotion not going to apologize for that i love it when the lord stirs my heart 
I love when he blows my mind. I love prophetic gifting. Uh, Vince is here. Vince is my friend from California, and God's using him to take some of what the Lord is doing down here. And he's a lone ranger up there. Y'all should pray for him. He is, he's filled with God, but he's got no outlet. There's nothing going on in his neck of the woods in California like what God is doing right here in Metro Atlanta. So he's just come from Greenville after attending the table conference with my friend Chad Norris, and, and he's getting equipped. And when, when he goes back, he's, he's looking to be able to release some of that and so he was telling me last night that man there was a Brian Schwartz was there and he's prophesying and he read Vince's mail and Vince's mind got blown because a guy that doesn't know him knew him knew what was going on in his heart knew what was going on in his family knew what was going on in his history I love that it's awesome I love that kind of thing where God blows my mind I love it when he moves my heart but let me tell you where I'm at can I process and confess something I'm grieved in my spirit when I watch people leave here in wheelchairs when I watch him walk out on crutches, when an injury in my own family years ago is still, I wake up and I say, where's the power, God? Where's the power? And friends, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to preach until God won't let me preach anymore. I'm going to continue to preach the word. It's not either or. It's supposed to be and both. But the church has got to get to the place where we look at what Paul says here, and he says, the kingdom of God is not in a bunch of words, but in power. And then Paul says, yeah, when I came to you in chapter 2, he says, my speech and my, my message were not in plausible words of man's wisdom. In other words, Paul says, yeah, I'm kind of a boring communicator. You wouldn't think of that when you think of the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, but apparently his public speaking was not that impressive. He says, yeah, I don't speak well. But then he just kind of throws it in and goes, yeah, when I came to you, it actually wasn't about my sermons. It was about the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power that came on my life. And he said, the reason for that is that the God doesn't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men. He doesn't want anybody to be impressed with the sermons or the skill or the communication. We can be grateful for it. But man, there's enough of that in the world where people just hang on the words of eloquent speakers. What we need is a move of the Holy Spirit to come in in moments like that. Sometimes sermons aren't even necessary anymore. Why? Because the Lord has shown up and says, I'm here, I'll be running the show tonight. And friends, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, we've got to get to the place where we're no longer cool with week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, of just having our minds moved and our hearts stirred a couple of times a week, but we leave and we're not carrying the power of God because the kingdom of God is in power. You say, well, Jeff, what's the problem? Well, I can assure you it's not him. If, if you want my opinion, I'll risk it here. Dramatic pause. My opinion is, as we won't experience that level of manifested power from the Holy Spirit until we can't live without it. So if we can live without it, God says, yeah, I'll just wait until you can't, you can't go any further without it. If we're content to, and listen, I'm going to keep meeting here. When I show up in this place, I'm expecting this to be the day, this to be the night, this to be the prayer meeting. When I'm at the prayer room, I'm thinking this might be the hour. Wherever I go, I'm constantly looking and waiting, saying, I, I just want to be in the right place at the right moment, because one of these days, something's going to shift, and the power's going to come. But listen, if we just remain contented for another worship set, another Bible study, another hour-long sermon from Jeff or Billy, then God will bless us to a certain degree with those things. But when enough of us get to the place where we say, we can't do this anymore. You don't walk away, by the way. That's what, that's what non-kingdom folks do. They denounce it. They say, there's a problem here. We've waited long enough. We're going to go down here. Well, let me tell you, when you get there, the same thing's going to be happening. So we don't, we, we don't abandon ship. What we do is we hunker down and we seek and we call and we fast and we pray and we wait. And when enough of us get to that place where, Lord, we are so grateful for everything you're doing. But God, we know you are so much more vast than what we've experienced. Show us your glory. Elijah, all jacked up in his thinking and depressed and upset and didn't know where he was, didn't know where God was. And he gets in there and he's just like, 
I just need to see a little something. Moses, the same thing. Show me your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. And the church is almost in a position, if I can risk this potential critique, I think the church is is saying this. We don't mind if you show us your glory. We're fine with that. If if you want to do it, go ahead. And that's not the level of hunger. Listen, Jesus is the one that said, hey, children, don't don't cast your pearls before the swine because they'll trample them underfoot. I believe he practices that. It would be inconceivable for him to toss out the pearls of breakthrough revival when we're acting like piglets in the pig pen that have just taken him for granted. Don't be offended with that. I'm just being raw and I'm being real. Why? Because the kingdom of God, friends, when we're talking about the kingdom manifesting, the power of God, we're literally the, the third grader who's saved walks into a room with sick people and just says, Jesus, heal you in the name of Jesus, and people get healed. I'm believing for that. And you're not going to sermonize your way. Out. Listen, I'm talking myself out of a job here, but you're not going to sermonize your way into kingdom breakthrough. What happens? Well, we, we've got to reach that point where and I believe this generation, by the way, that's coming up, I believe millennials and Generation, generation Z, they, they are going to be the generation where enough of them just say, we can't do this anymore. We can't go through cycles and routines and circles of, of, of my parents and grandparents' way of doing things. Lord, show us your glory. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not in talk, it's in power. So go down a little bit further with me. This kind of dovetails with what I just said, and I preached a whole sermon on this chapter this morning, so I'm not going to re-preach it, but it's, it'll be online this week. But the kingdom's not a friend to religion. All right, I got one person that's rolling with me tonight. Me and you going to do it, sister. Here we go. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15. This is Jesus talking. He's talking to the most moral biblically educated conservative people ever in his generation he says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites can you imagine what would happen if we did that to people in church today good night but look at why he's saying it. he says you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in He goes on to say, you travel across sea and land to make a single convert, a proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's that's Jesus. When we share our faith, we never tell people about this this passage. We, We give the, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's good, that's valid too, but it this is also valid. Who's, what's he talking about? Jesus is getting in the face of religion. He is not apologizing. He is not being diplomatic. He's not being politically correct. He is willing to wreck the church service by calling out by name groups of religious leaders here called the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, you are hypocrites because of your religion. Now, again, I preached this whole message this morning, and I don't want to re-preach it right now, but the the basic tenet is this. He he tells the crowd that day, he says, when these guys are teaching the Torah properly, obey what they say, but don't you dare follow their example because they preach, but they don't live what they preach. They're hypocrites. And then he goes on to say, because of the massive amount of tradition, the massive amount of regulations and rules that were not sourced in the word of God, but were sourced in the hearts of people that wanted to help God be holy. And so they added all this stuff to the Jewish Torah. They added all of it. And it ended up being like 613 commandments that a a sincere Jewish person in Jesus' day woke up every day and they're saddled with the burden of having to obey 613 commandments. Most of us in the room probably can't even name the 10 commandments much less name 613, remember them every day, and try to execute perfectly on them. But that was religion. Religion always puts weight on you, guilt on you, pressure on you. It says, perform, perform, perform. And then when you can't perform, it says, not enough, not enough. Try harder tomorrow. Try harder, run faster, go longer, do this, do this, do this. And Jesus comes in, and he looks at the people, and they're harassed, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered everywhere. And he says to the religious leaders, you are hypocrites. 
It's pretty intense because they were the Bible scholars. They were faithful. Man, they were moral. They tithed. They were very uh, invested in, in their, their Bible. And Jesus said, it's all external. He goes on in that chapter. To, I said I wasn't going to preach this, but I find myself being drawn down that aisle. He, he says to them, he says to the crowd, he says, everything they're doing, you can read Matthew 23 later, everything they're doing, they're doing so people will in, uh, applaud them and approve of them and admire them. That's religion. Religion is external. And the enemy substitutes religion for kingdom. And that's why religion always tries to give you a bunch of things that if you can master, you can call yourself spiritual. And Jesus comes in and very plainly says in Matthew 23, if, if you will, throw up Matthew 15, the next one. Look at what he says. This is your master. This is not me just being some flaming rebel here. This is your master Jesus talking. He says, to the same people, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth, the meat in the marketplace. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. Then his disciples, I love this, this is awesome. Then the disciples came and said to him, uh, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Isn't that just like people, man? It's like, hey, you, Jesus, we know you're God, but we'd rather you not say things that are offensive the next time we have a church meeting. And look at what Jesus replies. He says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. When was the last time you got acquainted with this side of Jesus? It's almost like the church is embarrassed of this. But friends, do you know what he's doing? He's coming. Don't miss what he said in the beginning. He said, you yourselves are not entering the kingdom and you're preventing those that want to get in. Religion keeps people lost. He's being very plain in Matthew 23. He's telling them, he says three different ways each time growing in intensity. He says to the Pharisees and scribes, you are going to hell. He says that. I'm trying to provoke you into looking for yourself because don't take my word for it. Read. It's there. And then he says there in the passage I just read, he says, when you go out and make converts to your dead religion, because Judaism was different than Pharisaical Judaism. Pharisaical Judaism was ornamented with all of these laws and rules and regulations that God never said, but man added it because he wanted to help God be holy. And he said, when you go out and you want to convert to that, they're twice the child of hell that you are. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room that really just like, yeah! Come on, Jesus! Why? Well, let me confess something to you. When I got saved within a year of my salvation, I was a Pharisee. I was a legalist. I thought I had been given the unilateral badge to patrol the streets of Christian Town as the sheriff and the inspector. I, I, I'm dead serious. You fasted twice a week, I was going to fast three times a week and I'd let you know it. You got up at 5 a.m.? Dude, I was up at 3 a.m. memorizing the book of Leviticus in Hebrew. <laughs> it wasn't that extreme, but it kind of was the same spirit. And my Christianity became about what I looked like, what translation of the scriptures that I carried, because back then there was only one translation. Everything else was a perversion, not a version. Yeah, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. What kind of music? It wasn't enough just to listen to Christian music. There were certain types of Christian music that God would smile upon, and I happen to know what they are, and if you don't listen to them, well, you can't join my club. <laughs> I'm being a little bit over the top with this, but I, honestly, looking back in it, it was just what I was trained in. They got to me first, and all of them were well-intending people, and all of them were sincere, and all of them were trying their very best to serve God, but they were just regurgitating what had been fed to them by the generation before them. 
And so that's why I believe with all my heart that because the kingdom is no friend to religion, God is raising up a generation of reformers. Some of you are going to be used of God to be reformers of the church, and you're going to have to have a spine. You're going to have to find out the way, and it's usually trial by error for most of us, how to communicate hard truths in love. Like if I'm dealing with a legalist, if I'm dealing with somebody that's a Pharisee, I'm not yelling like I'm yelling here. I'm, you know, that's not my, I, we, this is not how I talk. Somebody told me the other day, it's like, yeah, you're, you're a little intimidating, man. I was like, I don't walk around like this all the time. You know, I don't walk into the QT and say, hey, you got any chapstick? Now, that's not the way I operate. Go home with Amy. Hey, baby, how was your day? Was it good? How good? That's not the way I operate. But when it comes to stuff like this, man, I mean, if we're, if we're going to reform the church, we can't do it with a cotton ball approach. Strongholds don't come down with a, a wisp and a... Strongholds have to come down with strong truth. And by the way, for um, you that are reformers, I want you to know something. You're going to have to bear the stigma. Because reformers look like rebels to the religious. And, and, and so you're going to have to be deal with being viewed as a rebel. And all you're trying to do is topple down the substitutes and expose the counterfeits so that people aren't kept in their religious shackles. And I believe that God's going to raise up some of you in this room and others in this region because he wants to do something great, but there's so much religion in Atlanta. You need to remember with me that the two pillars of the one race movement were not only to bring down the stronghold of racism, but to bring down the stronghold of what? Religion. And we need to be swinging at both of those all the time because they're so intertwined. Now, let me get down to the, to the last one. We've said that the kingdom is not about rules we've said the kingdom is not about rhetoric we've said that the kingdom is no friend to religion and let me give you this last one that the kingdom is not a place of retreat i mean that in the double meaning a retreat can mean running away from something but a retreat can also be a place where you go to get pampered you go to get relaxed you go to it's all about you at a retreat right you know what i'm saying so it's, it's a double meaning here but let me give you paul's statement because this is one of the most overlooked statements for Christians in our day. And a lot of people will vehemently disagree with what I'm about to say because they believe that, that because Jesus paid it all, there is now a get-out-of-trouble-free card to every Christian if we just believe hard enough. It's a hyper-grace teaching that tells you you can live any way you want. Yeah, be real careful. When I'm saying it's not about rules, that doesn't mean we don't have accountability. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't define morality for us. When I'm saying it's not about rules, what I'm saying is we're not justified by keeping God's rules and we're not sanctified by keeping our rules. When we talk about the kingdom not being a place of retreat, let me just read from Acts 14, verses 19 through 22. This is Paul's testimony here. He's being hounded by Jewish opposition because he is now converted they lost their main spokesperson when Paul got saved. He was the Hebrew among Hebrews. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was persecuting the church, and he went off and got saved. And so they lost him, and so they hunted him every uh, year of his life after that. And it says in Acts 14, 19, that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, Paul rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, watch this, to continue in the faith, no retreat. Continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. For anybody that will receive this, I want to give you something that I believe to be the number one character essential in anybody that's going to live a victorious, overcoming Christian life. It's not about your giftedness. It's not about the open doors of opportunity that you haven't had yet. It's not about 
who raised you. It's not about your socioeconomic status. It's not about your race. It's not about your home life. It's not about any of those things. The number one character trait that you will find in every single consistently overcoming and ultimately victorious Christian is a refusal to quit and a commitment to endure until the end. Nothing tops it. You, I've, I've seen people that are uber gifted, crazy off the charts gifted. But when tribulation hit them, they're gone. Their giftedness could not sustain them. I've seen people with a silver spoon in their mouth, theological degrees that would blow our minds. They've learned everything. They got more knowledge. They, they've forgotten more than we've ever even learned or remembered. And, and they just couldn't endure. And all of their learning did not serve them. They could not overcome. They were not victorious. Why? Because nobody wants to slow down and get real with what Paul said. And Paul said this, through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of god for those of you that will receive it i want to tell you I, we need to be honest with unbelievers about this too at, at some point i don't know if it's the first thing we say to a non-believer but it needs to be somewhere shortly after when they give their lives to christ we need to be honest with them because so much of the evangelistic appeal in our day is come to jesus he's going to make your teeth whiter He's going to make you happier. He's going to clear up your skin. You're going to find a spouse within three weeks because that's the way Jesus is. It's just a bunch of garbage, man. Somewhere along the line, we need to say, hey, man, you're, you're yoked up with Jesus. It's awesome. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. By the way, the devil hates you. And the world is going to seduce you every single day you wake up if you're not prepared. And by the way, even if the world and the devil wasn't after you, you carry this thing called a flesh imprint. And you got an enemy that's still coursing through your physical senses and desires. And so you're really going to recognize that there's going to be a lot of tribulation coming your way. But it's through that that you're going to press into the kingdom of God. You see, we have, listen to me. We've changed the gospel. We've changed the biblical narrative to a cultural commentary. We have taken the American dream and broken it down to its molecular level, and we've taken the gospel and broken it down to its molecular level, and we've mixed the molecules and created something, and we're calling it now the gospel, and it's not. We tell people, come to Jesus because he's going to make your life better. Now, I understand what we're saying. That's not intellectually honest. He's going to transform your life, and you're going to become more like him. And in that sense, you're going to experience God on a level that people that don't know Jesus will never experience him. And in that sense, it's better, but that's not what we're communicating. We're communicating an American dream gospel that is foreign to the Bible. And even, man, I'm, I'm even sensing a little bit of it right now. When you start talking about tribulation and the enemy and a bullseye and warfare and the world and the devil, people are just like, man, why did I come tonight? When are you going to preach something easy? I, I, I'll never do it on purpose. I'll just do what the Lord leads me to preach, but... Friends, in the end, all Christians need to recognize that our lives and our work, our assignments in the kingdom of God will necessarily be characterized by sacrifice and resistance. We don't get away from it. The devil never goes on a retreat in the sense of going on vacation. He's always engaged. He's, he's got a demonic army, and their only assignment is to steal, kill, and destroy, because that's all he knows. And when you committed your life to Christ, and especially for those of you that are not playing around with this commitment, but you are, you're just heaven-bent that you're going to do something great for Jesus as he leads you, you have a big old bullseye on your back. And so I'm just giving you permission to no longer be surprised when you are experiencing tribulation. What did you expect? 
We've got some from the task school that are in the room. That is our mission school and our mission sending agency. We've got others in the room that train them. And I know you're hearing this, and I know that everybody that's training you is telling you the same thing. But, but you're going to experience incredible pushback from the enemy, not when you land on the foreign field, but now as you're preparing because he doesn't want you to ever get over there. So he wants to dry up your resources and keep you despairing over when am I going to have enough. By the way, if God's blessed you in the kingdom and you have revenue and income and money, invest some of it in foreign missions. You see me sometime this week, and I'll tell you where you can put it into missions to help get missionaries over into the unreached people groups because the enemy's fighting them to siphon it off. Then there's going to be tribulation that comes from any imaginable angle. Paul's statement. Codified here in Acts 14 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that through many tribulations, many tribulations, tribulations validate our faith. We don't know where we stand with God until it's tested. Now you hear me on this. I'm not telling you God's intentionally after you to make it so hard for you. He's not a sadistic father. But he didn't even immunize his own son from pain, loss, rejection, and suffering. He didn't even exempt Jesus from that. And how dare we in the 21st century and back to the 20th century take the pristine components of the gospel and mix them with the molecules of a happy American dream kind of mentality and then repackage it and represent it to an unbelieving world, it's absolutely nauseous in the throne room of God. Paul said this. Worship team, if, you're, if you will, please come up. Paul said, um, I want to know him. That was Paul's passion. I want to know Christ. He mentioned also, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I don't apologize for wanting to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. I, listen, it's not for me. It's not for my glory. I think we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be the people we're supposed to be and do what we're assigned to do. Paul said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But Paul did not leave off the other part. The fellowship of what? His sufferings. So if Paul reached a place of maturity where he said, I want to so connect with Jesus and I don't want to miss any of it, even if that means I need to fellowship, partner, I have a partnership with him in his sufferings, in his rejection, in his tribulation, in his uh, denial, in his deprivation. And Paul experienced all of that. You can read 2 Corinthians 4, you can read 2 Corinthians 11, and Paul lists out the things that he went through, and he just kept enduring. He never retreated. I want to promise you this as I close. There's a coming paradise that will be given to every single child of God. A mind-blowing, vocabulary-defying reality that we're going to enter into one nanosecond after we leave this planet. There's your retreat. There's your rest. There's the fulfillment of every promise of perfection and beauty and unhindered, unencumbered peace and joy and perfection. You're going to be perfect then. The biggest thrill in heaven to me is not getting away from all the stuff on earth. The biggest thrill in heaven to me is I'm going to see Jesus. And the Bible says, when I see him, I shall be like him because I'll see him as he is. So I'm going to be perfect. I won't be deity, but I'll be perfect. So I won't have to contend with Jeff Lyle anymore. That's actually a really good thing. Ask my wife, amen. <laughs> but until then, expect the tribulation. Don't stumble over it. It's part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not a perpetual retreat where everything goes your way and you have to put up with a slight annoyance here and there. Friends, I, I, it's not a picnic ground. It remains a battleground. And we have to press into that reality. The beauty of it is that in that pressing through and enduring, we experience connection and intimacy with the Lord 
that you can't experience with him if you're, you're strategizing your life to keep you safe and comfortable all the time. Throughout the generations, Christians have paid the price. I, I don't get up and go looking for trouble. I'm not, not encouraging you to do anything weird like that. You don't have to pick a fight with the devil. He'll find you. You don't have to try to stir up your flesh. You're supposed to crucify it. I am too. You don't make deals with your flesh. You don't manage your sin. You crucify it. You don't sanctify your flesh. You crucify your flesh. You die. And in that death to self and in that death to the world, we experience the overcoming presence and power and intimacy with God. An intimacy that you can't know if you're trying to make the Christian life your own personal comfortable retreat. The kingdom of God is not rules. It's not rhetoric. It's not religion. And it's not a retreat. It's a personal relationship with a glorious king who set his mark of love on you. He pursues you. And he didn't quit when he saved you. He pursues you. He wants to be close to you far more than you want to be close to him. That's why we're able to experience it. He is relentlessly committed to oneness with you. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son, reorient us. Reorient us, Lord, to the kingdom. Show us the marks of religion that we've bought into and grant us repentance. Help us not to hide behind our books, our blogs, our podcasts, and our sermons at church. Help us, Lord, to be grateful for the words, but to constantly recognize and press in for the power. We don't want an impotent faith. Let power come, Abba. And God, I ask you, help us to toss away our hopes for a retreat on earth where everything's cozy and comfortable. Let us put on the armor because there's a war. Raise up, even in the midst of this room, forerunners and zealots and radicals and reformers. Let the spirit of wisdom and revelation match our zeal. Let us have the wisdom from heaven to know how to steward the zeal from heaven. And God, do something with us. Lord, do something with me. Do something, Jesus. Do something with me. Do something with us. You've ruined us for this world. It has nothing that satisfies us. We want the fullness of your kingdom, Lord. Unleash some of it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.